This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer is Anthony Dockrell. And many thanks for this episode for, to Julia Carr-Katzel for helping out with the research. So, how was your weekend? It's fair to say uh, the election on Saturday night was one of those rare moments when our nation came together and shared many of the same thoughts and emotions, namely surprise and disbelief at the result. Labour went down in flames and Scott Morrison was reborn victorious like a male Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, or to use a sporting analogy, in a solo effort with no time on the clock, the big bloke ran down the line and scored the seeming possible, seemingly impossible try to win the game. So, the pundits give or take the odd Janet Albertson or Chris Kenny, uh, and three years' worth of polling uh, were wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. What a waste of money. Just think how many journos could be employed if we ditched the polls and spent it on uh, reporters. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, now we can look forward to ScoMo versus Albo. But before we get to all that, and I'm sure we'll do that in another show, there's some unfinished business about this election. Last week on Fourth Estate, we asked, was News Corporation putting its finger on, on the scales in favor of the government? I think we have seen some uh, pretty reasonable explanations about that. And the answer is probably yes. Anyway, but tonight, let's look at the election proper and ask the vexing question, did facts matter? To answer this question and many others, we are joined by a fantastic panel. Drumroll. Lucinda Beeman is a journalist and now she is a professional fact checker. She is a professional fact checker. She works at RMIT ABC Fact Check. Before that, she worked as a fact checker editor at The Conversation. Welcome, Lucinda. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Our pleasure. Anne Kruger has worked at CNN, Bloomberg, ABC Landline. She once hosted a classical music show, she tells me. Uh, She has recently returned from a long stay in Hong Kong to run the APAC Bureau of First Draft News, the international collaboration between universities like UTS and RMIT and news media organizations against the Internet of Misinformation. Welcome, Anne. Hello. Good to be here. Good. And rounding out this team of fact-finding, truth-seeking warriors is Michael Hopkin, a journalist who has worked for the West Australian newspaper. He's written for Nature and is now the acting editor of Fact Check at The Conversation. He's on the line from Melbourne, uh, which, by the way, uh, from, sorry, the Melbourne office of The Conversation, which, by the way, is on a bit of a reader revenue drive. And if you want to check that out, go into The Conversation website. Hello, Michael. 
Hello, thanks for having me. It is a great pleasure. So let me open with a uh, let me open with an open ended question. From your perspective, how clean was the election? Was it, to use a very overused uh, word, toxic? Linda, Bill Linda, Lucinda, <laughs> Lucinda first. What did you think? No worries, Paul. Um, <laughs> it it was a toxic election campaign, unfortunately. Um, obviously not what we want to see coming from the fact check uh, and verification space, but toxic nonetheless. The really interesting thing about this election, because of course misinformation and disinformation um, has always existed to, to varying degrees, but the role of social media um, and in the amplification a lot of in, of a lot of that disinformation um, is something that we're all turning our minds to now, and how to tackle that, and the fact that you know anyone can spread disinformation now. Someone can put up a post, target it to certain people, it can go viral. That's very hard to tackle, hard to find. And hard to refute. If we had a toxicity index, um, what would, just staying with you, Lucinda, what would the rating out of 10 be, you think? On an Australian scale? Yeah, Australian toxicity election index. I'd say it's up there. I'd say it's in the... In the nines. Nines. Gosh, okay. I'm not saying that there haven't been elections in the past that have been that high, but the probably the number of people um, who that kind of disinformation was disseminated to will get bigger and bigger every year. So if we look at Facebook with 18 million mm. active users in Australia and in the knowledge that so much of the disinformation uh, was spread through Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people don't have to be reading the newspapers or listening to the news. They just need to be looking for photos of their friends' babies and they'll get hit with and it. And up it pops. Well, that's a great segue. I couldn't have done better myself for you, Anne. Uh, you, you came back to this country from Hong Kong. You know, first draft was your dream job, I remember you telling me. Uh, and so did that dream get tempered by the level of toxicity you saw? Well, I do think we have to clarify and distinguish between Australia and, say, Asia, where I have seen toxicity boil over, really, and it becomes really dangerous for people's day-to-day -day life. So, look, I would agree with um, Lucinda about, you know, the scale. Maybe I wouldn't put it quite at a nine, maybe an eight, but there's the potential of it being a nine. I mean, but, you know, I really do think there was shock and awe polarization tactics used in the election campaign. So you've got a political campaign, you've got an election that's being used as a platform here. And some of the tactics really were shocking and awful. And in particular, I'm you know, thinking about your Fraser Annings. Now, he didn't get in and he didn't get a seat, mm -hmm. but his support group is strengthened and the and he has his official sites, his official pages, but then there are the offshoots of that as well. And when they're all starting, you've got 20,000 followers here and 20,000 followers there, it begins to add up. So I do start to wonder, you know, what is circulating around there? Okay. We'll get to the, yep. some more specifics in a sec. Uh, Michael, uh, you stood in to fact check, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, you stood in to check, fact check after uh, Lucinda jumped ship. Is that right? That is exactly right. right. Yeah, so you were a feel. newbie. You were, well, the reason I mentioned that is because you were a newbie to the fact-checking thing. So were you surprised at what you were finding? Um, I wouldn't say I was surprised. I mean, I was obviously following politics very closely even before I picked up the fact-checking role. Um, I mean, I think on the subject of how toxic the campaign was, I was almost maybe even expecting it to be worse, certainly given the parliament that preceded it and how rancorous things got there. Mm -hmm. The one thing I mainly noticed, though, is that 
because of this, um, you know, what we've been talking about of this sort of um, defracturing of the electorate and the ability of everyone to silo themselves on social media, it's almost as if the the two major parties can get away with sort of um, not being as toxic themselves. They're probably at, operating at about a six or a seven out of ten mm-hmm. in the knowledge that other people are going to take up the cause for them and, you know, not be afraid to hit the you know, sort of nine out of ten. Um, yeah, well, that's I mean, a, that's, yeah, that's a great yeah. point. So did you see, for instance, this is a question to you and Lucinda, whether the misinformation, the, the, you know, the, the lies in essence, were they coming from particular groups, you know, the hard right, the far left, whatever, you know, where were they, who was doing the bad stuff? Well, it seemed to me that, yeah, there were these sort of special interest groups. I mean, one of the, one of the big kind of outright lies um, that, came up during the campaign was the sort of, um, you know, the death taxes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that I think was based on a press release from a few months ago that came out from the government where I think Josh Frydenberg hinted at the, at the idea that it might become a labor policy at some point down the track. And then all these people kind of gleefully took it up on Facebook and I was getting loads of emails saying, Oh, I've heard about these death taxes and inheritance taxes. And, you know, so I think once, um, stuff gets put out into, um, these social media, you know, bubbles and echo chambers or whatever people call them. Mm-hmm. That's when I think they can sort of take a, take on a life of their own. And then if it suits a particular minister to, to not really, to just let it run and run and, and not correct it when it needs to be, then, um, then they'll just let it go. Yeah. I mean, that's your point, isn't it? That, I mean, there's nothing new in scare campaigns, you know, scare, well, Medi-Scare, for instance, in the previous election, but there's nothing new in scare campaigns, but it's the level of how they can be weaponized. Yeah, I mean, we did see um, some MPs, elected MPs, sharing that information as well. For example, LNP MP George Christensen Mm. um, talked a lot about death taxes and Pauline Hanson um, also went there. Right throughout the campaign. So, Mm. you know, it started off with that suggestion. It bubbles up and they, yeah. Was continued by some... Mm. Conservative MPs, and then it amplified to a huge extent by interest groups and viral misinformation. And so, maybe it's a good point in the show for you to explain a little bit more about first draft because I think you know most people will understand fact checking. It's been around a while, but first draft is a kind of a newish concept, certainly for this country. What is it? What is it? Well, first draft aims at finding best practice in the online and social media space and in particular it's been focused very much on social media verification and there's a strong emphasis on collaboration, how to discover misinformation but not only to just that but then how do you present that responsibly and ethically to the world because you have to be careful, you know, some things might be swirling around in 4chan and, um, you know, what's that tipping point where you go, okay, this is going to be a risk to greater society if we start to, you know, spread these sort of um, beliefs and ideologies as the 4chan moves into your more open social networks, you know, and can get into the, the Facebook sphere where there are people who you know, like you say, Lucinda, you know, they're, they're scrolling through and they might come across some information, some, you know, a bit of propaganda from um, a bit of a, you know, far right or um, a bit of an out there type of um, group and they wouldn't otherwise be searching for this, but they come across this. So how do people, you know, then weigh that information and do they have time to do that? And that's where we try to enter that space. So just briefly. Talk us through that process a little bit more. Okay, well, so what we've been doing is, and certainly for the Australian election, we held a pilot cross-check Australia 
And that involved, we had about 40 students that we trained up in advanced verification techniques and we had about three uh, media partners as well. And um, we have uh, a very large crowd tangle feed that we were populating with um, a lot of different Facebook pages and groups as well as Instagram and a little bit on Reddit as well. And that's a lot of the heavy lifting there. So you're looking at, you're uploading all the different groups and things like Mm -hmm. that and you're analysing what is gaining traction. And it's not just because something necessarily happens to be going viral, but just, you know, what is new and you're looking at different um, search terms and things as well. So, you know, so we might see, um, you know, with the the forty percent death tax, we might see. Well, who else is sharing this, and yep. how's that? Um, who who else is liking these pages? How many likes? What what sort of traction are these posts? So, is there a trigger moment just going on that death tax thing? So, is the trigger moment when, you know, Pauline Hanson shares it or George Christensen shares it? Is that kind of where the where you go, oh, yes, we must do something about this now. So, no, we actually saw it before that. So we, we we had our students that came across it and that was being shared in Messenger posts, um, so Facebook Messenger posts, and people were just sort of sharing it to their smaller groups. And um, our students found instances of that. And then we saw how that message then um, really took on a life of its own. And then you seem to have um, some of your um your your politicians, like your Pauline Hansons, got on the bandwagon after that. Okay, so you you started looking at it mm. right when it was in when it was bubbling away in Messenger. That's right. Yeah. Just uh, just an aside here, perhaps. Uh, how do you feel about the digital platforms and their responsibility? You mentioned Messenger, obviously, and. Maybe well, that's a whole new show, actually. That but. is a whole new show, for sure. I mean, there's a but lot does of... It, but the experience of the last few weeks show you that more needs to be done. That's the basic question, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, I'm also looking then at the powers of the AEC today. You know, so we're looking at um, mm-hmm. problems with political advertising, and it really appears that the AEC has quite limited powers. They can they give a lot of warnings to people, and that's, you know, um, so your actual political parties have to have authorised advertising, that's fine, but then what about the um, support groups that yep. are then spreading that? Uh, that that regulation's okay. just not there. All right, well, an, as I say, it probably is a whole new show. I want to get to the one of the central questions of this, and um, which everyone asks fact-checkers, and I know from my own experience on that, is uh, which party told the most fibs? <laughs> Lucinda? Well, I don't think we can say that definitively, which is a very frustrating fact-checkery quite it is. type answer. Um, I can look at the analysis that we did mm-hmm. um, over the course of the campaign at RMIT ABC Fact Check. So of about um, a dozen, a couple of dozen, sorry, fact checks. Broadly, uh, we found that around 50% had an in-between type verdict. So where there's an element of so truth. So half-truthy type vibe. That's right, which is very common mm. in Australia or mm. coming from Australian politicians. Mm, mm. Around 38% were in the red and around 13% were in the green. In terms of the coalition and Labor, they were pretty similar. So yeah. we had fewer, uh, you know, broadly green or correct verdicts. Most of them were more towards the red side, but between mm. Labor and the Coalition, they were relatively close. So they're equal offenders, broadly. In this particular very small non-scientific sample size. I know, I know. It's all right. You put your fat check hat on. Uh, Michael, what did uh, the conversation find? Something similar uh, or were you at it, 
disappointingly, it was very similar, actually. Yeah. I mean, I would echo all of the caveats that, uh, that Lucinda has just given and say, uh, you know, it, it does seem to be there certainly wasn't one side or the other um, that was, uh, you know, really kind of playing fast and loose with the truth. Uh, and in terms of the actual categories of, um, you know, sort of true or false verdicts that we were coming out with, by far the most um, sort of common verdict we were reaching with our fact checks was the kind of category of yes, but – Mm. Which so you know the the actual claim itself that you're checking is 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 true, but the wider context kind of tells a a more a important and interesting story, which obviously the whoever it is that's made the claim is is perhaps happy to gloss over. Yeah, I, I mean this, this is, is very common yeah. in in the the work of fact checking, right? You find out mm. that a politician has gone from A to C and forgot to get to B. Or yeah, and I think I think a lot of politicians are. They're probably doing it deliberately. They're kind of sailing close to the wind, so they'll they'll come out with the fact that they know to be true, but of course there's a there's there's a more nuanced and, and wider um, sort of debate to be had around it, or there's some context sure. that is you know glossed over. We might go back to that sort of what that all tells us, but uh, just to give our listeners a better understanding of what fact checking does. Lucinda, maybe you can talk us through this. So Bill Shorten during the campaign said that millions of Australians were underemployed and working two jobs. RMIT, ABC fact checker, actually checked this. What was the process? How did you go about that? Well, with all of our fact checks, we will uh, – so our remit at the moment is to take claims made by politicians and other leaders in Australia and then take that claim and test it against the best available data or evidence. So in true journalistic fashion, we will go to the person who made the claim and ask them if they can provide us with their sources – that doesn't affect our verdict at all. It's just part of the good journalistic process and, and information gathering. We will then go and find out what is the best available data source to test this against, and we will do our own extremely forensic and detailed analysis. We'll also go to experts in that field who we trust and ask them if there's any other you know, context or analysis that we may have missed, humble journalists as we are, um, and put that all together. It then goes through a very extensive fact-checking process within our unit as well, so we're all holding each other to account before coming up with a verdict, which is debated in a group, so it's not one person coming up with the verdict, and then we will publish that. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it was found to be correct, I think. Yes, that's right. Happy, but da happy I days for Bill. Correct, uh, but nothing new here. Nothing new here, nothing to see. Please move on. Okay. Tell me, uh, one of the central things about both verification and fact-checking, which has always vexed me, I suppose, is how other journalists use the work, right? So in my wildest dreams, uh, I like so journalist is following the prime minister around and, you know, there's a bog-standard sort of doorstop and the journalists, instead of asking some sort of question which might get a great quote, ask the question, prime minister, what you've just said has been fact-checked by uh, the conversation or RMT fact-checker, ABC fact-checker, uh, and they found that what you've said is a load of hooey. How do you respond to that? And that very, very rarely happens. Is that a frustration for humble fact-checkers? That would be beautiful. To yes. all the journalists listening, please, please do it. That would be Well, why don't they do it, though? That's Because it's, it's an interesting point underneath that is why they don't do it. My argument would be that they're there for the grabs rather than the facts. Look, I think it is um, improving on that front because during the election campaign we did see um, other journalists pointing to RMIT ABC fact checks um, as evidence for, for, you know, an argument or a question they might be putting to a politician and we saw 
you know, The Guardian republishing our verdicts. Um, so I think there is increasing engagement between the media organisations um, and hopefully that will continue. Mm. Michael, did you have experience of that? I mean, what's your view? I mean, you've been, um, you've been a reporter on the West Australian. You're faced with the chance of talking to the Prime Minister, either getting a grab that might support, you know, a news story or asking him or her about a fact check. What would you do? Well, if the if it was the right place in the right time and it, the fact check was the killer question to ask, then, yeah, I would like to think I would definitely ask that. Um, I mean, I think this is kind of touching on perhaps a wider problem with political journalism in general is that a lot of the political reporters absolutely run off their feet when it's campaign time and they're kind of on the campaign bus or, you know, these days it's the campaign plane, um, not really knowing where they're going to be or what the um, what this sort of issue of the day is necessarily going to be when they get there. Um, so, yeah, it is a thing that I would really like to see lots more reporters doing, um, but it's the kind of thing that takes, you know, uh, it takes the kind of background reading and the kind of um, pre-research that, uh, you know, in an old school world, everyone would be doing. But these days, often it's sort of five minutes pitch up. Uh, yeah, you that's know, why PM you're there, to right? Do the doorstop. That's why you're well, there. You're doing that work. I mean, that's the whole point well, of yes. fact checking, isn't it? To do that yes, work for them. Yeah, we'd hope we're doing it on their behalf. Uh, and yeah, all, um, you know, uh, our stuff is free to republish. Um, okay, and just on, just on that point of, of impact, what needs to improve, or do you think there's a cultural thing here about getting other news media organizations to kind of delve into these this sort of model of journalism as opposed to give us a great quote, sugar fix kind of model? I mean, verification is actually quite new as we know it now. I mean, it feels to me like First Draft has been around for years just because we've done so much and we've um, discovered so much in recent years. But really, they came into their own in 2016 on polling day for the US election and they were actually um, collaborating with media organisations and universities and they were looking at um, um, influences on voters on polling day in the US. And it's... You know, it's a massive lift, it's a massive task, and then they followed that in 2017, looking at the French elections and then um, shortly after in the UK. And I think there's the, the idea of collaboration with media, mm -hmm. looking into verification, is actually a very, very new concept. And I think it takes a bit of time, but once the organisations that have been a part of this and have experienced this properly realise that there is so much to gain when everyone collaborates together. There are so many benefits um, when everyone collaborates, in particular when you're looking into social media, into areas that are actually quite closed sometimes and quite difficult to discover, um, you know, the messages that are swirling around your messenger, your WhatsApps, that sort of thing. So it's, it's still a new concept, but I think... The fact-checking verification that we've seen so far has been solid in Australia, has been reliable. I know there have been other issues overseas. You know, there's been this proliferation of fact-checking that's kind of, you know, blossomed in recent mm -hmm. years as well. But I do think what we've got here and what's coming in here is solid. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's a, a matter of... Um, yeah, taking the time yeah. with the media organisations. Yes, I'm sorry. I don't doubt that it's solid. It's rather that, I mean, I, I think it goes to a cultural practice, doesn't it? The normative practice of journalists is to get a great quote. Absolutely. Not to worry too much. I mean, this is one of the, I think, fundamental problems maybe with journalism. More interested in getting a great quote than actually uh, sometimes uh, sacrificing that great quote for the facts. And you're right. And, you know, this 40% death tax 
hmm. just swirled and swirled. And it was quite apparent early on that, um, you know, it, it shouldn't have had legs, but it did. Hmm. So why? Lucinda, you disagree with me, I hope. Oh, I'm just th- having a think <laughs> about this. I actually think, uh, you know, obviously there's not one story about the media. There are different pockets, Many. you yeah. know, all the way across. But oh. I think we're seeing uh, in some areas more engagement with the facts. Um, a lot of reporters actually not being afraid to delve into that kind of detail, which, you know, maybe will lose um, some readers. But there's been, a, you know, during the campaign, great um, not fact-check in a kind of formal fact-check mm. journalism sense, but just general, you know, really good forensic fact-checking mm. journalism, you know, from The Guardian, from Fairfax, within other units within the ABC um, even at the Australian, you know, great piece into the um, death tax issue by Alice Workman. So mm. I, I think it's getting better. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you a school project. This is a little bit uh, cheeky. But if you, if, if you were fact-checking the assertion that the political polling were, was broken, is broken, how would you go about that? I would not do that. Why not? Because I don't think, um, I mean, from RMIT, ABC fact-checks perspective, I don't think... Um, that would work for us. So you take that question, is it broken? So where is the evidence for that? Well, they were wrong. They were wrong, but can we point to a data set? Can we point to... about 30, I don't know, 42 polls between now and the last federal election. Uh, Sorry, there was 56 polls between now and the last election, all of which seemed to be wrong. I think we need to think... It's a pretty big data set, to be honest. So we need to think about the the entire ecosystem of journalism. So what different roles do different journalists play? We wouldn't see that as our role because we wouldn't want to dilute the kind of absolutely factual, can stand up in court, absolutely defensible kind of verdict that we deliver. And we would see that as the role of good journalism, to go out there, look at the history, exactly point out how many incorrect news polls there have been, make a list of it, make an assessment about whether it's broken. And there are lots of journalists who are well-placed and well-equipped to do that. Okay. Michael, how would you go about fact-checking the assertion that the polls are wrong? I see Dennis Muller did a quite an interesting piece in the conversation today along those lines, and not exactly a fact-check, I might add, an opinion piece. Well- well, um, exactly. I mean, as uh, I'm a re- agreeing with Lucinda all the way through this, but as as she rightly said, it's a difficult one to fact check on a formalised basis because the first step of any fact check article is identifying the precise claim to be checked and then seeing whether or not it's checkable in a definitive way. So to say a statement like the polls are broken because they were wrong, um, how do you adjudicate on whether that's right or wrong? I mean, they were wrong, but okay, you know, is, is it because they're broken? Um, so this is the kind of story mm. I think that mm. benefits more from kind of a contextual analysis and, and explainer. So you see a lot of journalism these days on the conversation and elsewhere. It's mm. a kind of a growing uh, genre of journalism of just um, explainers of mm. complicated issues. Mm. So, you know, why did the polls get it wrong? I think that's more relevant question than are uh, is polling broken and useless mm. so you want to know what are the factors at play i was reading some stuff earlier in the week that was saying it's because um you know you can't just look people up in the white pages anymore and call them at home which is kind of true right certain people it's all yeah. this robo polling and you know the technology yeah. has buggered up the polls to put it bluntly mm. and you have a yeah. view on this don't you i do and and i think also people don't consider just you know how does a poll work and 
any um, even simple academic approach to how polls work and surveys work will always state that you have to think of the margin of error. And not once has anyone really, you know, even mentioned margin of error, surveys, um, you know, sample size. And as you uh, mentioned just before, Peter, you know, how is the polling conducted? Um, it used to be um, considered it was a little bit more thorough when everyone had a landline, but we don't have that anymore. So, you know, I think it's um, a reflection on our new digital society too. How do you poll people? Um, and I think this is something that's never it's never mentioned and people are so surprised when the polls are out and I think well <laughs> really you need to you need to think about how each poll is constructed and whenever and this is basic news literacy as well whenever you see any sort of poll or statistics we always have to think well how has that been collected well I'll stick with you for a second and then to Lucinda uh, one contention I would put to you is that polls are again a sugar fix for the news media they are guaranteed <laughs> lead story or lead of the bulletin, whatever. And so news media in this country and others are addicted to polls. doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. It's not responsible reporting. And, and and we've got to we've got to uh, you know get over this and um, you know consider more well, what are the actual policies and what are the actual people the constituents what are their concerns and we have to get back to that and it's a bit more of a public journalism angle that needs to be taken mm. rather than this you know constant two horse race uh, yeah well, ditch the polls spend it on journalism. I would, I would completely agree with that. More focus on policy and more focus on what you know Australians want to hear about. Um, I think there is a lot of self-reflection going on now about polls. This is the time to do it. This is the time. Overdue. Um, about the polls, about whether or not they should be relied on, probably not, and how to report on them exactly, bringing in things like how they were constructed. There is always going to be a desire to predict an outcome and to, I guess, take the temperature of, of the nation in the lead-up to an election. And it may be now that looking to social media might be a way to do that. So looking at mm -hmm. um, sentiment expressed online, looking at, as you said earlier, the engagement with different pages mm -hmm. um, from different groups and um, Google searches, mm -hmm. which are, you know, sure. or very an octopus. revealing. An octopus so. would probably be, have got just as much, better money spent. At least you can eat it afterwards. That's right. Octopus. Beautiful. Great. Every newsroom in Octopus apologize to anyone if, if they're offended with me saying you can eat octopus. And I apologize to Octopi. Um, Nick Evershed, just going to you, Mario. Nick Evershed in The Guardian wrote a very interesting article the other, uh, in, in since the election looking at the breakdown of the election result through data. And one graph, I think, captured the problem for the Labour Party, but also, I think, in a way, for fact-checkers. So, and it was this, that the booths where the level of education and employment were highest were the booths where Labour did best. And as education, employment and engagement dropped, so did their vote. So I guess the question, you know, the slightly rude question, though, is is fact-checking fact-checking cutting through into where it really matters? Or are you just preaching to the choir? I think that's a very valid question. I oh, mean, thank you. The, you yeah, uh, it's, and I think there is there is something to that. I mean, journalism is only um, worthwhile in as much as people read it and take notice of it. So the challenge is to try and reach everyone. Um, and it's um, not, you know, disparage the sections of the media that are widely read in, you know, different areas uh, or others. There is a lot of media that probably know that they are um, a, a basic monopoly on their their readers or viewers and you know therefore 
can kind of do what they want to an extent and know that if they deliberately or otherwise report stuff that isn't correct, then they know people are just going to read it and then think that. Okay, so um, all right, John. How do we fix this? And this question for Lucinda and also for Anne. In terms of verification, if it is really preaching to the choir, what needs to stop? What needs to for to change for it not to be? In terms of preaching to the choir, our readership um, is just booming, and I think that's you have a big choir at the ABC, and we have a big choir. Yes, um, but I think that's evidence um, just of how much people are hungry for fact checks and that type of accurate information. So in the first five months of this year, we've had more than 3 million views, huge, huge numbers. And the average number of um, readers this year is more than double what it was in 2017. So we're cutting through somewhere. That information is increasingly getting out. Okay, that's good news. And I think in terms of impact, um, yes, we need to get that correct information out to people and clearly we're reaching bigger audiences. We also need to hold the politicians to account and we are seeing that um, although some politicians are repeating incorrect information time and time again, over time we have seen them start adjusting their behaviour after they've been pinned enough times. Okay, I'm going to go to you, Anna, in one second, but just, Michael, just let's presume, and this is a plug for the conversation, let's presume the conversation's reader revenue drive is wildly successful and you uh, bring in $30 million. How much that would that, be successful. That would be very successful, but how much <laughs> would you spend on improving fact-checking? Well, with an amount of money like that, it would be great to spend, uh, you know, a decent chunk of it and, um, yeah, and so what would you do? Team. What would you do? Well, hire more people. I think the answer to fact checking is resources because more it's office. a very right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a really resource intensive uh, form of journalism to do, and that um, I can't speak for all media organisations, but I think that might be why uh, we don't see as much of it across the media landscape as we might like to. I mean, imagine if um, someone like imagine if uh, Seven News had a fact checking unit, and then every day on the news they could have a truth teller and liar of the day well, segment they, they at the end of their when, political report. They did when I ran PolitiFact for them, but anyway. <laughs> well, there you go. See, and I'll I, tell you what happened at the end of the 2013 election, the Channel 7 News said, we don't need fact checking anymore. And I said, why not? And they said, well, the election's over. And I said, what? Politicians have stopped lying. <laughs> well, it's a good point. And it's a real shame to hear people sort of seeing it as yeah, something to view in those terms. Um, but yeah, just to come back to sort of, I mean, the more people you can have in a unit checking facts and the more you can do it, uh, the quicker you can turn stuff around. I mean, there's that old um, catchphrase about, you know, the truth. Um, what is it? You know, it's nonsense goes around the world yeah, yeah. before the Yeah. Um, right. And so, yeah, you know, often it can take a week to check something that somebody just, um, you know, sort of throws out as a line on Q&A on a Monday night. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, being able to do things fast and still just as rigorously as they need to be done okay. is is a big challenge. Yeah. I'm going to bounce off to Lucinda then, and the last word is going to be with Anne. Do you think AI is the answer to that? It's not the answer, but it is part of the answer. Is that what you were about to say? <laughs> no, I was about to say something about the choir. Okay, go on. Tell us about the ABC choir. Well, I think that's a little bit unfair perhaps to Australians assuming that they are all one way or all the other. I think there are a lot of Australians who, you know, are maybe undecided about what they think about politics or politicians or move between each election. And those people, I think, are hungry for the facts and do want to take on the facts. So, you know. Okay, fair point, fair point. And the final question is with you. How do we make uh, everyone 
all electric. How do we improve? How do we rise the level of literacy about facts and verification and misinformation uh, in the Australian public so we have a less toxic election in three years' time? Oh, well, it's multi-pronged. I mean, I think you've got to start this in school with media literacy, news literacy. Um, You know, teenagers are amazed when online influencers are getting paid to be telling them these things. They don't even realise that. I mean, so, you know, basic news literacy, media literacy there Mm -hmm. um, and understanding what actually is the difference between journalism and promotion and, you know, what is the role. Um, But I, I wrote a Medium article recently called Less Elephants, More Ants. And so it basically means you know, more journalists. The journalists are the ants, you know, with apologies to elephants now as well as an octopus. Yeah, octopus and elephants. But, um, <laughs> been a bad night for them. But, you know, and that was because I'd just been in Indonesia and um, listening to UNESCO and the issues that they had there with media ownership and the elephants, so, you know, the media owners and the pressures that are, that are happening. And we have this in Australia as well. Instead of more ants, more journalists doing the work and we need a more um, salient message with the fact checks with the verification and it's got to hit in social media as well and it's got to be in those news feeds and people have to bump into that as well okay wonderful there's one for the ants we're very pro ant on this uh, show that's all we've got time for but we've been talking to lucinda beeman from the rmit abc fact check it's such a long title <laughs> that's us <laughs> yeah uh, Anne Kruger, it's not shorter, much shorter, APAC boss of First Draft News, and Michael Hopking, acting editor of Fact Check at The Conversation. Michael, are you returning to your day job after this, or what's the plan? I will be returning to my day job as the uh, as the environment and energy editor, and there are plenty of facts to check in that area. So, mm. you know, I'll still be keeping a close eye on the pollies. Okay. And uh, just to hand, I've had a, a fact check update on the contribution from tonight's panel, and they were found to, to be correct and trustworthy. So well done, panel. <laughs> All green. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Uh, make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about the media and politics and a few things in between at your leisure. We'll be back next week with more, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to researcher Julia Carr-Katzel. Uh, thanks to my producer. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.